and thank you for listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from How Science Denialism is Fueling the COVID-19 Crisis in Brazil by Dr. Natalia Pasternak and first broadcast live on the 25th of June, 2020. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support. Thank you, Kat. Thank you all for having me, all the team and all the skeptics in the UK. Uh, I'm very happy to be talking to you and to know that you have such a big skeptic community because this is something that I've been trying to build in Brazil. So to get you started on how I came into the skeptic movement, uh, I've been working with science communication for about five years. Before that, I used to work at the bench at the laboratory. So I'm a microbiologist. I did my uh, my PhD and doctorate stu- and postdoc studies in uh, bacterial genetics. So I was very happy working at the bench without having any thoughts on how science is seen from the other side. And I was very happy inside my bubble at the university. And that began to change when I became a mother. So when my daughter was born, uh, I was taken out of that bubble and I had to deal with a situation that uh, I think most mothers here will, <laughs> will relate. When my daughter started going to school, she was about a year and a half, and I had to deal with what we call here in Brazil, mother's messaging group. I don't know what kind of platform you use in the UK. Here in Brazil, we use WhatsApp. It's a very popular messaging group. And so we had, we had a mother's group. And uh, in that mother's group, I started to see many, many messages about pseudoscience and alternative medicine and astrology and things that really hadn't crossed my mind when I was inside my bubble at the university and talking mainly to my peers and to fellow scientists. And these people, these mothers, they took that pseudoscience very seriously. And at first, uh, I didn't board because, well, I was new and I really wanted them to like me. But suddenly the anti-vax movement showed up. And when they started to talk about vaccines and how it was harmful to to, to children's health and they wouldn't vaccinate their children, and and Brazil has a very very strong vaccination policy, Uh, so they were going against it and saying that uh, we shouldn't, we should uh, protest about it, and and then I got really worried, and I said, well, I, I can't stay silent anymore. I have to say something. I'm a scientist. It's my job. I I can't pretend like this isn't happening. And so I said, and I started to explain the anti-vax movement. I I talked about Andrew Wakefield and how it all started and that it was all a fraud and that he, he had his license removed. Uh, and he was exposed, and that lousy paper on Lancet was retracted, and that no, vaccines don't uh, don't cause autism, and it's all a lie, and it's all a fabricated lie from the start. And to my surprise, they became very interested, 
and they and they started to ask questions and uh, and they were enthusiastic about it and they say oh but so it was all a lie it, it never happened uh, he invented it he he wanted to sell his own vaccine and I got so enthusiastic about it and I told them everything and I said wow they are really interested and then I got really carried away and I started to talk about homeopathy and acupuncture and GMOs and then they blocked me. And so this was my first experience trying to communicate science. And that made me realize that it was not as easy as it looked. And, and, and of course, as you all know, it's not that easy, really. Uh, so uh, uh, that, that was when I decided that I had to do something more professional. It was not about just uh, exchanging messages in WhatsApp groups uh, I, I had to do something bigger. And then uh, together with two friends from the lab, started a blog, which was the easy solution at that time. So we started to blog about science, but mainly about pseudoscience and the dangers of believing in magic and, and, not, uh, uh, and not basing your public policies and your daily life decisions on science. Because uh, if you come to think about it, every little decision that we make, uh, be it on our daily lives, when we go to the market, when we decide to vaccinate our children, or government decisions that they have to rule about uh, stem cells research or GMOs, uh, all these decisions that can result in personal decisions that can really harm your health or your pocket, or governmental decisions that can really harm public policies in a country, they are based on what people know or what they don't know about science. And what they don't know about science was something that really scared me because it was a lot. Even before our present government, it was already a lot. And so we started with a blog and uh, we spent two years just blogging about science and pseudoscience. We became quite kind of well-known in Brazil for doing that. Some journalists uh, uh, came to our help and, and helped us promote the blog. So the thing grew, and then we had an episode in Brazil. Uh, I, don't, I don't think you've heard about it all the way in England, but it was the Cancer Miracle Cure in Brazil. And it came from inside my own university, the University of Sao Paulo, which is the largest university in Latin America. So the, there was a crazy professor from the campus in one of our university campus. And he decided, really decided, he took it out of his head that he had found the cure for cancer, for all types of cancers in the format of a miracle pill that you only had to take two or three times a day and then you could let go of chemotherapy and radiotherapy or immunotherapy or whatever cancer therapy you were into. And that made national news. So this guy, this professor from the university, and he was a chemistry professor, a full professor from the largest university in Latin America, so he was very respected. 
And he went to national media and all of a sudden he was in all TV stations and newspapers saying that he had found the cure, he had discovered the cure. And, and this episode in Brazil was what really motivated me to create the Institute Question of Science, which I preside today, because the miracle cancer cure made it all the way to our Supreme Court because the university, when the professor retired, and let me tell you something that will really shock you. He did it. He produced the pill in his laboratory inside the university with public money for 20 years. And nobody said a word. It was in a small town near Sao Paulo. I'm from Sao Paulo, which is the largest city in Brazil. It was in a small town that's very close to Sao Paulo. They ha uh, we have uh, one of the campuses in, in the university is based there. And he distributed the pill to the local population and he did it for 20 years without anyone from the university board complaining. So no directors, no deans, no head of department, no one saw 20 years. And then after the professor retired and only after he retired, was that the university decided to halt the production. They, they made him stop and they closed the laboratory. And then was when the mess began because then people started to riot on the streets because they wanted a pill. And then he made national TV and then the whole country was talking about it. And then the university got sued for stopping the production. And uh, there was a court of law that decided that the university had to resume the production. And the university is not a drug company. So uh, it, it was really hard for the university to, de to defend itself against these rules. And it may, so the story made, the, um, uh, made it to the Supreme Court. And thankfully, the Supreme Court ruled against it. So the university was not made to, uh, to produce the pill. It were, uh, the, the production was stopped, but not before the government of Sao Paulo, of the state of Sao Paulo, uh, spent 10 million reais. It's about uh, $3 million, I think, uh, today, uh, to, to run a clinical trial of the pill. And... Every student, every biology, chemistry, every science student knew that, of course, the pill couldn't work. But we had to run a clinical trial because of popular pressure. And that was when I decided that we had to face we, we, had, we had to face pseudoscience in Brazil in a, more, in a more professional way. And I decided to create the Institute Question of Science. It's an NGO. It's uh, financed by philanthropy only. And it was founded by me and three other colleagues, uh, two scientists and a journalist. And we decided that we had to do something bigger. So uh, the Institute is now a year and a half. We run a magazine that's also called Question of Science. We run several events, now all online, of course, but we try to work with communication to the population. So we have the events, seminars, uh, and the magazine, which is free and online. Uh, 
And we try to work with the government, which, of course, has been much harder now because the government is just not interested. But we try to work with parliament members that are interested in science to promote science-based public policies. And that's how I met Michael Marshall. And that's how I came to be here today because uh, I based my, my institute. Uh, I try to copy from people who do it very well. And Marsh was one of them. So uh, I was very impressed with the work that he had been doing with Simon Singh at the Good Thinking Society. And so I invited him over to Brazil and he came the last year university to, to the university to talk about the work that he had been doing with homeopathy in England. And he was my and still is my inspiration to keep on going and to never give up. So the Institute Question of Science was born with this mission to bring a science-based public policies. We started with uh, not only homeopathy, but all sorts of alternative medicine, because here in Brazil, we have 29 modalities of alternative medicine paid for with taxpayers' money in our public healthcare system. We have a healthcare system that's very similar to yours in the UK. So it's a public healthcare system, but of course, Brazil is huge and we have to cater to 200 million people. Uh, it's not a perfect system, of course. It's lots of flaws, but we decided to tackle one particular flaw that it is that the healthcare system in Brazil promotes pseudoscience. It promotes alternative medicine in 29 modalities that range from homeopathy and acupuncture, which are, of course, the most famous ones, to ones that you have probably never heard of, like circular dancing and family constellation and aromatherapy and uh, chromatherapy and bee therapy. So there's 29 of them. And it's creepy, really. Uh, there's things in, in there that you, you can't even imagine. To, you can begin to imagine what they want, to, to how it could possibly work. And of course, it doesn't. But so we decided to go after the 29 modalities of alternative medicine. We've been running campaigns and trying to reach parliament members. And we, uh, we try to, to sue the government with some uh, particular uh, lawsuits here in Brazil. So we're trying to build uh, a skeptic community here and trying to bring some rational thinking to the population and to the government. Uh, the reason I brought Marsh in last year to talk specifically about homeopathy is because we started our own 1023 campaign here in Brazil and it was going very well until the pandemic hit us and then of course all our projects were put on hold because nothing could bring more pseudoscience to Brazil than COVID-19. We were surprised to see the reaction uh, from Brazil's government and unfortunately of many Brazilian doctors and people when it came to pseudoscience being promoted in all COVID-19 related issues. So uh, I can say that now that I really miss battling homeopathy and astrology and alternative medicine because it was so much easier than what we have to do right now. And it seems so harmless compared to what we do right now. And I know, I know that homeopathy is 
is not harmless. I, I know the potential of homeopathy and all alternative medicines to harm people, and that's why I've been fighting it in, in Brazil. But compared to what I've, I see now in my country about science denialism in COVID-19, it really scares me to a point that uh, I miss battling homeopathy. And so uh, this is just to give you a, a scenery of how Brazilians see rational thinking. So Brazil is a huge country and it's a, it's a very religious country. We don't have an official religion, but mostly Christian. Uh, but we have a lot of uh, folk religions and African religions, and we, it all gets mixed together. Lots of spiritualism and, and spiritism, which are different things. And uh, it, it all gets mixed together here in Brazil. And most people, even though they don't have a particular religion, they are very religious. They they are very spiritual and they are very prone to believing in magic and especially when we when it comes to healing and medicine so we have lots of folk healing uh, here in brazil and traditional medicine and so this kind of magical thinking i think it, it really is the perfect uh, condition for pseudoscience to spread and when you are in the midst of a pandemic where people are scared and people are anxious and they want this to end. So you have the perfect scenario to sell things, to, to sell quackery, really, to people. And this is what, what's happening in Brazil. And the same that happened with alternative medicine that is endorsed by the government. So we have the alternative medicine in the healthcare system. The same thing is happening with alternative treatments for COVID-19 here in Brazil. Uh, miracle cures, just like the cancer miracle cure that happened in 2015. Now we have chloroquine and ivermectin and all kinds of unproven medications that we know for, uh, for a fact that don't work for COVID-19, but they are promoted here in Brazil by the federal government itself. So uh, now we are in a situation where we have a president that denies the existence of the disease itself. And that's very, that, that's scary. He, he breaks lockdown rules, he goes out on the streets, he meets people, he shakes people's hands, he hugs them, he takes selfies, and he actually says on uh, lives and national TV and broadcasts that uh, it's probably just a minor flu and we should face it like men, not boys. And uh, we shouldn't be afraid and it's hurting the economy and we must reopen. And the state governors are all against him. It's all a plot to take him down because the state governors aren't listening to the federal government. That's a good thing. But uh, it, it, it comes to a situation where his lack of respect for the population, for those who lost their relatives and friends and, 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 and for our dead. Our deceased is is unbelievable. He he came to a point when asked when we reached thirty thousand dead in Brazil about a month ago. He came to a point when he actually said to a journalist who asked, "Mr. President, we have just reached thirty thousand dead. What do you say about it?" And he answered, "So what? What would you have me do? 
my middle name is Messiah, but I can't perform miracles. So that was his answer. This is the situation in Brazil now. So we have reached over a million cases and 50,000 dead and still rising. Cases are piling up by the day and deaths too. And uh, no one is doing anything about it. We are not testing enough. We are hardly testing at all. The federal government hasn't made an effort to purchase tests and uh, diagnostic tests. Uh, the results, uh, the, uh, the data, of, the government tried to hit the data some, uh, I think it was two weeks ago. It, it, it was also, uh, I'm not surprised by anything really that comes from this government, but uh, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. The president said uh, again on national TV that he was going to withhold the data uh, from the, the website of the Ministry of Health so that it wouldn't get on the evening news. That was his that, that was his words exactly. He said, okay, it's over. No more evening news now. And uh, so uh, the, uh, the, the Supreme Court ordered the data to be broadcast again, so it's back. But uh, it, it was amazing that the, that the president himself was making an effort to hide COVID-19 data about numbers and number of cases and number of deaths because he didn't want those numbers to be on national news, on the evening news. So this is a grim situation that we go through. And uh, the reason I told you all the story about the, the, the pseudoscience in a healthcare system and the cancer miracle cure is because maybe Maybe we can walk it out together because I don't have all the answers. I hardly have answers at all to say why Brazilians are so prone to pseudoscience. Because as it is, Brazil is the country now that is seen as the worst example of how to tackle the pandemic. And mainly because the government denies all scientific evidence and doesn't listen to scientists. And yes, we have good scientists in Brazil. As I said, well, we, we have uh, the largest university in Latin America and a lot of other state and federal universities. So we have a very strong tradition in science in Brazil, although it's been uh, hardly funded. For, for, for the past three decades. It's not just the present government. Uh, science has been disregarded in Brazil for quite some time. But it's, get, it's gotten worse now. And I think we've never had such an anti-science government ever in Brazil. Well, we had problems. We had budget problems. But we never had such an anti-scientific feeling in Brazil, in the government, and in the population. One thing that really struck me during the pandemic, working with science communication, was how little our doctors, our physicians in Brazil knew about scientific method. That was really impressive. Uh, I'm a microbiologist, I'm not a doctor, but I have been working with science all my life. And uh, I was very surprised to have to debate about chloroquine with doctors that had no idea how a clinical trial is run and, and what's a placebo group and what's a double-blind study. And, and they actually relied on anecdotal evidence to prescribe chloroquine. So I heard from actual doctors 
in Brazil that their clinical experience is above scientific evidence. And that they knew for a fact that chloroquine worked because they could see it working with the patients. They were prescribing and people were getting better. So, of course, it worked. And my answer to that became very famous here in Brazil. Uh, and that it was a video, it was a, a debate. Uh, or I was the, the only scientist and two doctors, and the two doctors were speaking for the use of chloroquine in Brazil. I was the only one speaking against it. And it was really funny because uh, the debate really got viral or on social media, and mainly because of that of one sentence that I used. Because when they said that that the the clinical experience was above scientific evidence, and they could see the results, and I answered, "Well, that's the reason we blind you in a double blind study because you see things you are not supposed to see to see things. That's why you have to be blinded, and and." That, and then it was good because it was a good opportunity to explain what's a double-blind placebo-controlled study. And I really took advantage of that. And I, we wrote several articles about it. But still, it shocked me that doctors would know about it. And it was not only those two doctors. It's the whole medical community in Brazil. And, of course, that must be the reason why homeopathy and acupuncture are considered medical modalities here in Brazil. They are taught as medical regular practices in our medical schools. And it, it, it's shocking, really. I gave an interview once to an American channel, and the journalist that interviewed him, he was so surprised that uh, he couldn't believe it. it uh, the, the look on his face is, is the funniest part of the interview. When I said that homeopathy here in Brazil is a medical modality uh, and that it's authorized by the Federal Board of Medicine and we teach it in our universities, in our medical schools, he couldn't believe it. And he said, no, no, no but w what you're saying is that these people, they, they, they are doctors. The, the, so the, the home, homeopath doctors in Brazil, they are real doctors? And I said, yes. And he said, no, no, but I mean real doctors, the, the ones who go to medical school. He said, yes, these are the ones. And, and, and he said, no, no, but I'm talking about the real doctors who go to medical school. And then you're telling me that they, they, they finish medical school and they decide to specialize in homeopathy? And I said, yes, you got it. That's Brazil. So this is exactly it. So it's a medical specialization here in Brazil. And so I think it's no wonder that Brazilians are so prone to medical thinking and are so vulnerable to, to, being, to being deceived by charlatans. And of course, uh, when quackery when comes from the federal government, it becomes much more difficult to fight it. Because even if the president is an idiot, as is the case in Brazil, people still believe him because he's the president. So when people see the president going out on the streets and shaking people's hands and not giving a damn about social distancing rules, they say, well, if he's doing that, why am I staying at home? Why should I bother? Why should I wear a mask? The president's not wearing a mask. And the president says to take chloroquine. I want to take chloroquine. Oh, well, good. So the president now uh, sets the army labs to produce chloroquine. What a good president he is. And people really look up to 
Bolsonaro, even if he is Bolsonaro, people still look up to him. He still has got the approval of 30% of the population and 30% of 200 million people is a lot of people who still believe in him. So it, it's really it's really hard to go against him. And, uh, uh, and another thing that happens here in Brazil, and this is why I'm so happy that, that I can share this with you because you have a strong skeptic community in the UK. I'm just trying to build one in Brazil and I've been trying to do it for one and a half year now. So it's a very young skeptic community and the scientific in Brazil is not very active uh, and doesn't want to be active in politics. Uh, so uh, for instance, uh, I filed a lawsuit against the government with my institute now it's uh, i'm waiting for the results it's already at the supreme court to remove chloroquine uh, from the guidelines of the ministry of health because as of now uh, chloroquine is a standard procedure it's a standard protocol for covid-19 here in brazil uh, the Ministry of Health authorizes the use of chloroquine since the early symptoms of COVID-19 for everyone. It has just really expanded the use to include children and pregnant women. So it's all over and it's a national guideline from the Ministry of Health. So my institute decided to sue and we asked for help from all the scientific societies and medical societies here in Brazil. We have the equivalent of the AAAS in the US, which is the uh, Association for the Advancement of Science. So we have one just like that in Brazil. I don't know if you have something, uh, something similar in the UK. Uh, and we have all the specialist societies. So we have uh, Infectology Society, Immunity Society, uh, Microbiology Society, which, which is mine, uh, uh, no more. Society. So all charities have their own societies. And I asked them all to join me uh, to, to sue the government uh, and to, to, to try to remove this protocol for the use of chloroquine. And no one came. They were all afraid of retaliation. They were all afraid of what the government could do. Uh, they, they, they didn't want to get involved in politics. Uh, so some of the answers I got was, uh, Natalia, I think what you're doing is terrific, but I don't, uh, I, 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 we, we just do the science part. We don't, you know, we, we don't want to do the politics part. And there's not much way, uh, there's not a real way to separate it, is there? Because uh, when politics starts to dictate Public health, public health guidelines, politics is interfering in science. And we should talk back. We should speak up for science. We should demand that public policies are science-based and not ideology-based, as we see right now. So I was... Uh, I didn't have the support of any scientific society, my own. My own microbiology society was one that backed me up and the genomics society too. I'm a geneticist, so I think these two uh, are very, they, they are very close to my heart and I was very glad that they decided to join me and they were very brave because they did it in spite of anyone else coming together with us. And the lawyer who, who is running the, the lawsuit she was very disappointed and she actually said, wow, these medical societies, they, they don't have any idea of how powerful they 
could be if they had joined all together to press the government. Uh, so I'm still waiting for the results on that. And uh, I'm not very hopeful, but let's see if we can at least try to do something about it. Uh, of course, we have been trying to communicate the science about these miracle cures. So we have, as I said, we have chloroquine, we have ivermectin, now we have vitamin D, we have zinc, uh, we have homeopathy too, of course, and now we have ozone therapy trying to uh, to take a ride in COVID-19 too. So uh, we have lots of quackery and pseudoscience being promoted in Brazil during a pandemic and because of the pandemic trying to take advantage of, of COVID-19 and it's it, it, I, I've never worked so hard in my life because every day we have another miracle cure popping up or we have another claim or we have another uh, regulation or law that we have to to, to speak uh, against and speak up for science so it's been very lonely here in Brazil, speaking up for science, it's been very difficult. Uh, I'm very glad for all the international support that I got, especially from Marsha, the Good Thinking Society, and from uh, the uh, Center for Inquiry in the US, which also helped us a lot. And uh, we've been really trying to to build this community, to teach people to think rationally and and to promote skepticism. It's not been an easy job especially during the pandemic, but uh, we're trying as hard as we can. The good news about it is, I think, because of the pandemic, our work became more relevant. People started to notice us, and the Institute uh, became more powerful and more influential. So now uh, I have been called on national TV almost every day, to give interviews and to talk about miracle cures and tests and vaccines. I, uh, I currently work in a vaccine development lab, so uh, I love to talk about vaccines because that means uh, I don't have to talk about chloroquine. And I really, uh, I've had it talking about chloroquine because it doesn't end, at least here in Brazil. And, and the thing that worries me, is that Brazil being prone to this magical thinking uh, because of all its tradition with folk medicine and with traditional medicine and because we are probably failing in teaching rational thinking and skepticism in our medical schools and in our healthcare schools. Uh, so I think we are contributing to, to these situations, that, that this situation endures and that people keep uh, thinking magically instead of scientifically. Changing that will require a cultural change in my country that I don't know if can be done. But, but uh, if I didn't believe it, in it, I wouldn't be doing what I do. So uh, I still have hope that I can do it. I don't have any any high hopes for the present government because uh, Bolsonaro is really not worried about Brazilians. He's worried about his own career. Uh, he's worried about remaining in power. And he's worried about his very particular religious right-wing agenda that he wants to impose in Brazil. So he's a threat not just to science but to democracy itself. And Brazil, and I, I don't know, uh, I don't think that you can have science 
without democracy, probably the other way around is also true. So I think they go together. And as scientists, I think it's our, it's our job to fight not just for science but for democracy and that's why I want to bring the scientific community and the medical community into the promotion of skepticism and rational thinking and and maybe maybe in the future we can start teaching evidence-based medicine in our schools remove the, uh, the the subjects of homeopathy and acupuncture and start teaching our medical students bullshit sorry but that's what it is and and maybe maybe the next generation will be made of children and young people who can really think rationally and that will not be so vulnerable to quackery, to miracle cures, and even to anti-democracy statements and and governments, really. So um, I think I, 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 I still have some more minutes, but I think I said all that I really wanted about Brazil and, and how we are facing the pandemic. We aren't. So in, to, to sum it up, I think, unfortunately, my country right now is almost a control group. If there are scientists in the audience, they will know what I mean. It's almost a control group for an experiment of how to run the pandemic. So if you do nothing, and that's what a control group does, you compare countries that uh, tried several strategies to fight the pandemic and to contain the pandemic, and you can compare them to Brazil, the control group, the control country, the country that did nothing because we did almost nothing if it weren't for the state governors we would really be in a much worse situation i think we are lucky that we are a federation so the state governments are very independent in what they can do and the state governors so far they were doing a good job and uh, so the, the, the state governors, they tried to impose lockdown rules. It was more like the lockdown guidelines. It was not really enforced, but they tried to get the collaboration of the population. They closed the markets and, and all economic activities except for the essential ones. And it was kind of working because it was hard to get the involvement and engagement uh, of, of the population when the federal government has opposite guidelines. So the state governors were fighting the federal government, but uh, two weeks ago they decided to reopen. I think they got a lot of pressure for, for, from some economic sectors and they decided to reopen even though the cases are still piling up and deaths too. So we still have a, a, a very pronounced curve and it's going up. It hasn't given any signs of reaching a peak or a plateau and still the states decided to reopen. So we'll probably see the results of that reopening in a few weeks. I'm afraid that the results are going to be disastrous. We're probably going to see a lot more cases and a lot more deaths. And unfortunately, that's the situation right now. So Brazil is a case of what happens when you ignore science, when you ignore the scientists in your country, and when you ignore democracy. This is what happens. What happens is over 1 million cases and 50,000 people dead 
And it's probably much more than that because it's a huge country. We are not testing anyone. So we have a, a huge subnotification problem. We know that it's probably much more than this 50,000 dead and much more than 1 million cases. It's just that it's not official because we are not testing people. And we are relying on miracle drugs to save us. We have no investment in science whatsoever. For instance, my group has just applied for a grant for three vaccine strategies, very advanced strategies, molecular vaccines, DNA and RNA vaccines, and we didn't get the grant. Uh, we got merit approval. So uh, the, the, our, our funded agency said that the, uh, the project was great. It had merit, but they didn't have the money to give us. So we have no investment. And we are not investing what little money we have in tests, in uh, protective equipment for the population and for our healthcare workers. We are not investing in oxygen and ventilators. This is what happens when a government ignores science completely and disregards science and education. So I'm very worried for the future of my country. And I'm glad I can share this with you because I, I really think that the whole world has to know what's going on in Brazil, what's really going on. It's really way worse than what you read in the papers. So now I'm open for questions. I think we'll, we'll have an interval. Is that it, Kath? And then I'll, I'll be happy to answer any questions you have. Well, welcome back and thank you for staying with us for the question and answer session. Um, I think we are just going to get stuck right in. Um, and our first question comes from Capivara Comata, who asks, does it make sense for least developed countries to fund their own instead of focus on bringing or producing the vaccine as soon as it is ready? It does, actually. It makes perfect sense. We should be funding our own research and we should be really investing in developing our own vaccines and diagnostic tests because otherwise we become very vulnerable to importation and to avail of these products. And uh, what happened at the beginning of the pandemic was that when we were trying to import the, the reagents to diagnostic tests here in Brazil, we couldn't because it was all sold out. Or, of course, more powerful countries had purchased all the stocks and the companies are used to producing this kind of reagents in, in, in a regular basis and, and for such a high demand. So uh, we couldn't get any reagents and we don't produce them in Brazil because we never invested in producing our own reagents. So we have all the expertise, we have the people, we have lots of molecular biology uh, research labs in Brazil with uh, very well-known researchers and, and, and grad students who could perform the tests, that can perform the tests, but we didn't get agents like DNA polymerases and, and, and stuff that we needed to build the, the kits, the diagnostics diagnostic kits. Uh, so uh, yes, e even developing countries should invest in science. Investing in science is what really develops a country. If we don't invest in science, we'll be underdeveloped forever. Okay, um, great. Our next question is from Pontus Brockman and they ask, 
how does the general public feel about Melissa Anera's denial of COVID? It depends really on what side of politics they are. Bolsonaro still has a lot of followers. As I said, he has uh, 30% of the population's approval. It's it's a lot of people who still uh, believe and support Bolsonaro. So these people, they, they, they follow his rules. They follow his role model. And if the president speaks against social isolation uh, and the use of masks, they are not going to use them. And the rest of us, uh, the, the rest of us, of course, are against the government and, and, and we want people to be aware of the importance and, and the severity of the situation that we're living in of COVID-19. And we want these people to be aware and to really communicate science and make people uh, really conscious, self-conscious that they have to wear masks and they have to respect social distancing rules. Uh, so the country is really divided politically. And this political division leads to uh, to science denialism in part of the population. Uh, so the, the, the president sets the worst role model ever. And there are lots, lots of people who believe him and who look up to him for guidance. Uh, so it's, it's really, it became much more of a political question than a scientific question. And, and this, is, this is what makes it so difficult to tackle. I think that's something that we're seeing a little bit in the UK and in America as well. Like for some reason, despite evidence pointing, or pointing towards the idea that these people are, are terrible leaders, and setting terrible examples, they've still got support somehow. It's really strange. It is, but but it's it is not just Brazil. It happens. Uh, I, I think Brazil is the worst example right now. But we've seen it happen in the US. We've seen it happen partly in the UK too. So I think it, it, it happens. And and of course, I I, I I I'm not a social scientist, but I know that Brazil makes a good case study for social scientists we have a we have a joke in brazil we say that brazil is not for amateurs figuring out what happens here is not easy (laughs) (laughs) okay um our next question has been submitted anonymously and they ask uh, the number of covid deaths in manos has collapsed what's different there to the rest of brazil manos is uh, for those who don't know manos is up north in Brazil, in the Amazon state. And uh, what happened in Manaus is that they reached the peak. That's why cases are dropping now, because the situation there was so bad and so uncontained that they reached the peak very quickly, very fast. And so they, they had a huge number of cases and deaths, and now it's coming down, not because they did anything to prevent it, but, but because it's the, natu- it's the natural flow of the disease. So they reached the peak, it's coming down, but of course, now they are probably going to face a second wave. Um, our next question is from Sean Ellis, and they ask, um, if you're opposing treatment that are supported by the Brazilian government, are you worried that the government might take, might make life difficult for you? Oh, they already do. So uh, I, I am worried, of course, uh, but it doesn't stop me from doing my job. And of course, uh, some people have to do it. Uh, I'm lucky enough that I can do it. So uh, 
my, I am attached to the university, but not in a way that it threatens my independence. Uh, so uh, I'm free to speak my mind and nobody can take my job away because it's not a regular job. So the president can fire me. Uh, I run my own institute. No one can fire me from those except my own board when they get fed up with me. It probably will happen sooner than I think, but still, uh, it's my own institute. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm in a very privileged position, really, to speak against the government. I can do it. And because I can do it, I think that it's, it's my obligation to do it. I think I have to, because uh, I'm one of the few people in Brazil who really can do it without being afraid of retaliation. The only kind of retaliation that I can get from the government is really defamation and uh, maybe they, they, they can try to take down my website. They have tried, uh, but it, it, it doesn't really, at least now, at least until now, it, it really hasn't come to much more than that. Uh, still haven't seen in Brazil anything more serious than that, apart from one case that uh, I can bring it up. It happened to a very, a very dear friend of mine. One of the researchers in Manaus, in, in that city up north in Brazil, that had the most, uh, the most cases so far, uh, he, uh, he uh, ran a clinical trial on chloroquine. And he published on JAMA, which is a very prestigious medicine uh, journal, and it was it was a great paper. So he's a great scientist. He's a professor at, at, in one of our, our federal universities, and he runs an institute there in Manaus at the tropical forest, at the Amazon forest. And he ran a, a clinical trial on chloroquine that showed that chloroquine didn't work, and that it poses uh, heart risks, cardiac risks. And he was attacked not only on social media, he received death threats for him and his family. So people really, uh, he received death threats of people saying that they were going to murder his children so that he would know how it is to lose people you love because he was accused of being a communist and of having uh, killed people on purpose because when he noticed in his study, in his, in his trial, that there was a cardiac risk. Of course, he removed all the patients, but that was during the trial. And, and some patients died of COVID-19, not because of the trial, but still he was accused of deliberately killing people just to make Bolsonaro's drug look bad and to to try to take Bolsonaro down. So this was a very extreme situation. It didn't happen to me, but it happened to a dear friend of mine. You can read about this on Lancet. I think they just ran a story on Marcos Lacerda. That's the name of the professor. And he's still being sued here in Brazil because of his clinical trial. So besides receiving death threats, he has to deal with, with a lot of lawsuits now that remove him from teaching and from caring for people at his hospital because uh, he said now his life is devoted to answering lawsuits. Uh, this, I think, was the most extreme situation that we got here in Brazil of political persecution because of chloroquine. But is really astonishing like I'm, I'm really surprised to hear that it's that extreme um yeah. and well, i think 
it's an incredibly brave stance to to continue to speak out against pseudoscience, um, especially in that climate. And thank you for continuing to do so. It's it's really impressive. Um, I think the next question is um, it's another anonymous question, um, and they ask: Is the younger generation less vulnerable and less prone to magical thinking? I really don't know. Uh, I would hope so, of course, but I wouldn't count on that because we still we still teach science in Brazil uh, as a given, as a, a whole bunch of scientific concepts, and we don't really teach children how to think rationally. So we teach a lot of concepts in a bundle together, saying, "Oh, look here, the Earth is round, okay." And we don't explain how we know that the Earth is round. And we don't explain how we come to scientific conclusions. We, we don't explain the process of science. And, and I, I think uh, until we change that in basic education, I don't think the next generation will be more prepared to, to deal with magical thinking than we are now. But that's just me being pessimistic, maybe. Uh, maybe we can change that. <laughs> Yeah, potentially. So, would you think that the best way of tackling it is is in the classroom and getting in as early as possible? I, I think so. Yes, I think we we really should focus. Of course, we have to educate the adults too, but I think we should focus on educating the next generation to become critical thinkers, to become skeptics, and to think rationally about the world. And we should really invest in teaching science in a way that shows the scientific method and processes and not teach a finished given concept. Okay. Um, our next question is another anonymous question. And they ask, how can we help from beyond Brazil without being seen as interfering or doing anything counterproductive? I don't think you would be seen as, as interfering, really. I think Brazil is very fond of international interaction. And, and we have a thing here that I explained to Marsh once that we call a Tom Jobim effect. Tom Jobim was here in Brazil. Uh, composer and he was the composer of The Girl from Ipanema, which you probably heard of. Uh, so it's a very famous song, but he only became famous after Frank Sinatra recorded The, the Girl from Ipanema. Uh, so Brazilians have a tendency to think that anything that comes from Europe or the US is better. It has an international seal of approvement. <laughs> okay, so uh, as I was saying, uh, international interference is really well accepted here in Brazil. We really welcome it. It's not something that uh, we'll regard as interfering or it's not going to be frowned upon. It's really, really well received. And I think what, what you can do is just to really share our stories, share the stories about Brazil. The world has to know what's going on here. It really helps us uh, to get some international pressure on our government. Uh, and so the, the, the more pressure he gets internationally, it really uh, the, the, the more help uh, we get here to do our job. So if you can just spread the word, I think this is really going to help us. I think one thing from that that, that springs to mind is um, if, if Brazil is working at developing its own um, antibody tests and its own vaccine, do you think that that 
kind of Brazilian attitude of preferring stuff from outside. Um, do you think that's gonna that would affect the uptake of, of any uh, antibody tests or vaccines? I don't know really. Uh, it, it would really help us, of course, if we could fundraise from international uh, agencies that will that that support science in Brazil. I think it, it, it's it's really hard for such a thing to happen because, of course, international funding agencies are going to fund uh, research projects in Europe and the US. They're going to be very worried about what kind of science is being uh, developed in Brazil, although I can guarantee that it's very good and solid science. It, uh, but, of course, I, I know that, uh, that that developed countries look to developing countries in a way that, oh, they're just learning, they're very young. And and so I think it would be hard, it would be a hard sell, but we could try. So it would be welcome anyway. <laughs> okay. Um, our next question comes from Dave the Drummer. And they ask, what political tactics or strategy do you think may be a you may be able to use to fight the anti-science in government? Uh, I, I don't really know, really. As I said, it's the first time in my life that I've been faced with such a, a politically anti-science sentiment in, in my country. Uh, I've been dealing with a lot of pseudoscience, but uh, it's nothing compared to what we're facing right now. The country is politically really divided. It's broken in two halves that hate each other. So we see a lot of angry people on either side. And, and it's really been difficult to communicate uh, to communicate at all, uh, and least of all to communicate science. So uh, I, I, I'm not into politics, and uh, I, I, I'm learning. I think I, I still have much to learn on, on how to deal with these kind of situations. Uh, I'm used to talking about science, but I'm not so used to 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 talk about the science and politics intersection that has become uh, so present. In Brazil right now, so I think we're we're all learning, and it, it's not it, it's not an easy task. Um, the next question, it's another anonymous question, and they ask how much power do the state governments have, um, and do they set their own rules on lockdowns? They are completely independent, completely. They can set their own lockdown rules. They can decide to reopen. They don't have to to abide by the federal government guidelines. Uh, and as such, there are no guidelines at all. So there's the, we don't have a health minister. Uh, I, I forgot to mention that in my speech, but Bolsonaro fired the last two health ministers because they didn't agree with him uh, about social distancing and the use of chloroquine. So uh, it's been two health ministers already, and now we have an interim minister who is a military general, has knows nothing about medicine or science, and no technical expertise whatsoever, but he does what Bolsonaro tells him to do. So he was the one that passed the protocol for the use of chloroquine, the national use of chloroquine, and, and he's... So we, we've been out of a health minister for 40 days now in the midst of the worst health crisis we have faced. Uh, so, it, well, yeah, you, you see where we are. Yeah. yeah. But, the, but, the state, but, but the states are very independent. Uh, and I think this is what has been saving us so far. Because, as I said, the states decided to reopen the economy now. And it's probably going to be a disaster. 
So has there been much variation um, in the different states on the approach to COVID and, and therefore the outcomes? Uh, it's Brazil is huge. So you have to think of each Brazilian state as uh, an European country, really. It's just about the same size. Uh, and so some states, they, they, they haven't been really hit by the pandemic yet. Uh, the pandemic has just now uh, started to, to reach the, the southern states in Brazil. Uh, it started here in Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo was the epicenter of the pandemic, and Sao Paulo is in southeastern Brazil. Uh, so it started here, and, and from here it started to spread. Uh, so it reached the, the northeastern region and the north really quickly, but it took some time to reach the southern states. So, so far... Uh, Brazil, uh, the south of Brazil has been doing really well, but now they see the, they see lots of cases coming probably from Sao Paulo down, and uh, as the cases keep piling up, they are trying to implement lockdown rules. Uh, the, the same is not happening all over. So, uh, for instance, the state of Sao Paulo and Rio, which are the most densely populated states, uh, they are reopening now. And what happens here in the state of Sao Paulo is that the disease starts to leave the capital and head towards the interior of the state, where you have uh, several small towns that are not well equipped to deal with the pandemic. So, so they don't have enough hospitals or CTIs and they are going to struggle because they now they see a lot of cases piling up and deaths and they and then these cities, these small towns decided to go on lockdown on their own. Uh, so even the cities have some degree of independence that they can set down lockdown and that's a good thing because at least we have some mayors and some state governors that are really aware of the severity of the situation and are taking measures, but not all of them. Okay, well, uh, another slightly more political question. Um, our next question is from Dave Jenkins, who asks, how much longer until your election? And what are the chances of Bolsonaro getting back in? Yeah, well... Chances are high, and that's what scares us, because we have no real opposition. Uh, the Brazilian left is very discredited right now. Uh, you probably know that our former president, Lula, who, who was a, a strong representative of the left here in Brazil, uh, was in jail for quite some time because of corruption. Uh, so uh, the Brazilian left has become very discredited, and I think that's what, that was one of the reasons that Bolsonaro actually got elected, because people were so tired and so disgusted with the left governments that we had, that they turned to the right-wing governments uh, looking for a hope. And, and I think the same thing happened in the U.S., really. Uh, and maybe in the UK as well. Uh, so it happens that when one side gets uh, really screws up, I'm looking for a better, a better word, but I, it didn't occur to me. And that's what happened here in Brazil. Uh, so the other, uh, people get tired. 
and people get really disappointed and they look to the other side for help and, and suddenly they see a glimmer of hope and they say okay this is not uh, this is not so much aligned with my political ideology but this guy says he's going to fight corruption and and that's how bolsonaro won probably because he was nothing it, it was a a campaign very uh, very geared towards social media and and try to convey this idea that he was a serious man that he had values that he had family values and and all that right wing stuff but especially that he was going to fight corruption it was going to be a corruption free government and of course it is and it, it has more corruption probably than the previous one but uh, but still he has the support from 30% of the population And this 30% was enough to get him elected in the first time. So we are really worried that he gets re-elected. And of course, we are going to vote for anyone who opposes him. But we know that Brazilian politics, they are so scattered and, and bickering amongst themselves that they will probably not reach an agreement on one strong person that really has the possibility to to overrun Bolsonaro in the next elections. I'm afraid that we will we'll end up with lots of scattered uh, candidates from the left, from different political parties, because we have tons of political parties here in Brazil. It's not the same as it is in England. We have several political parties and uh, from the left or from the center or from the right, but there's plenty of them. Uh, and I'm afraid that we are probably going to end up with a lot of small candidates from several parties and not one really opposing candidate for Bolsonaro. But let's wait and see. Uh, as I said, it, it may be, it may just be the pessimist in me. <laughs> uh, do you know when the next elections are, are set to happen? In uh, two years from now, yes, two years. He was elected in 2018. Um, our next question comes from Rob McDermott. And they ask, how has Brazil's COVID-19 response compared to that of other South American countries? Yeah, it's the worst, really, in South America. Argentina is doing much, much better. Uh, Paraguay, too. And, and even Chile, who has some issues right now. But most of South American countries are, are, are doing much better than Brazil. Uh, I think uh, to compare with another Latin American country, I think Mexico is also not doing so. It's not doing so good, but uh, Brazil is still the worst. Um, we've got another anonymous question, and um, they ask, uh, what checks and balances are there in Brazil on presidential power, and could they be of any use in fighting in fighting dangerous governmental pseudoscience? So uh, it's the same checks and balances as the US and probably the UK too. So we have the three powers with equal uh, power. So uh, uh, we have the uh, the executive and the judicial system. Uh, they have equal powers, what you say. So the checks and balances work. Uh, and one uh, one thing that we are glad that it works well, for instance, when the government decided to hide the numbers 
from COVID-19 because we, we have the numbers displayed every day, the number of cases and the number of deaths and all, all the graphs and tables. They are displayed in the website of the health ministry. And Bolsonaro had them removed, as I, as I said uh, during the lecture. He ordered them removed because he didn't want to see those numbers on the national evening news anymore. Uh, and, and then the Supreme Court ordered them back. So the checks and balances are working still. It's still a democracy, but we don't know for how long. <laughs> okay. Um, our next question comes from Foible. And they ask, are you worried that this government is also the steward of a bulk of the Amazon rainforest? And what do you think the long-term implications of that will be? Yeah, uh, so it's, uh, as I said, it's the most anti-science government I've ever seen in, and that applies to all fields. So uh, the government hasn't been very keen on preserving the Amazon forest, as I'm sure you know, and he, he, Bolsonaro himself uh, disregards ecology and uh, and sustained development as a whole. Uh, so it's probably going to, to we, we're going to see tragic consequences of, of the choices that are being made here in Brazil in agriculture and in uh, in, in forest protection, environmental protection. Uh, we're going to see tragic consequences of that, and these consequences are going to to replicate all over the world because we know we know as a biologist, of course, uh, when you look at the broader picture, we know that when you mess with the forest, the consequences for the climb are going to replicate here in the south, for instance. It's going to affect the rains here, the rain season here in, in southern Brazil, and it's going to affect, it, it has the, the potential of affecting the climate all over the world. Uh, so it's a world problem. It's not just a Brazilian problem. And I think that uh, relates to that other question that asks, how can we help? How can we help uh, from abroad? This is how you can help by exposing the problem, because it's a global issue. It's not going to be restricted to Brazil. If Brazil doesn't protect its own forests, it's it's going to affect to affect the whole world. If Brazil can't deal with the pandemic, it's going to affect the whole world because the virus is going to keep on going. And 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 so it's it's a global world, and it really it really helps Brazil if you can help this uh, this news to get exposed and. And to really raise awareness of, of, of the size of the problem, of how it can affect the whole world, that it's just not a Brazilian problem. Okay. Um, well, Matt Reynolds asks, um, what is the most notable positive of how Brazil or its population has reacted to COVID-19? I'm sure there must be some cases of marvellous things to fight all the bad. I think the positive side uh, that I can see is that people most of the people got engaged so uh, people really uh, they many people adhere to the stay at home campaigns and and, and to really to 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 understand that we're doing it 
for our families, for our friends, for for our uh, for our parents and, and our elderly people. And, and I think this feeling of engagement and of solidarity is a beautiful thing, and it happens in Brazil too. Uh, although, of course, it's not as generalized as we wish. So we know that uh, the adherence to the the lockdown guidelines not as, uh, as big as we wanted them to be. In Sao Paulo, for instance, we never uh, we, uh, we could never get past 50% of, of adherence to the lockdown guidelines. It was not really enforced, but we had lockdown guidelines and, and campaigns for people to stay at home. We never got over 50% of the population really staying at home. But this 50% shows us that people were engaged. And they and they were doing it for for their relatives, for their friends, for their loved ones. So I think this is the beautiful part. I think the other beautiful part, and not only about Brazil. I think uh, as I work with vaccines. I have never seen in my whole life such a huge international effort of research into the same subject. So there are over 140 laboratories right now researching vaccine strategies. For me, this is something uh, unprece- uh, really a something that I-, I could never think of, of going through a situation like this. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful to see so many labs working and focus and trying to come up with a solution and trying to come up with a, a quick solution although I, we know it's going it's a challenge but we know that we need it fixed and, and the vaccine is probably the best solution we have uh, so i think these are the positive ways i think uh, upon the pandemic in a way it brought people together and the other positive thing uh, is that skepticism became more relevant not only in Brazil, but in the world. And I think that's a good thing. That's why, that's why we have been working so hard. Uh, so I, I think when people notice, for instance, that my institute here in Brazil was the first to notice the chloroquine hype and to, to, to notice it for a hype and say, oh, this is a hype, this is not science, but it fooled many scientists. Because uh, the same happened, the, the same that happened here with the miracle cancer cure that came from a professor at the university, the same thing happened with chloroquine. It was a very renowned French professor. He was the head of a hospital there in France, and he was very respected by the scientific community. So he fooled many scientists at the beginning. He didn't fool the skeptic movement. We know a charlatan for a charlatan. Not, of course, we're going to fail. It's not as if we're perfect, but we are trained to spot the the the, the red lights of that. So we usually see the signs. We we look at a figure like Didier Raoul and we say, mm, "The guy went to social media before peer review." I see Andrew Wakefield all over again. So we see the signs of charlatans, and we usually can't spot them. So I think at least we will recognize for the work that we do. And just, um, just going back to one of the, the points you made then, of like there's been efforts towards um, people staying inside and people wearing masks. So was that, was that more coming from social media than it was from the government, or was it coming from somewhere else? Mm, nothing from the government, from the federal government, but from the state governments, yes. 
But uh, as a whole, uh, even the state governments, they are not doing a very good job in communicating science. The media is surprisingly really because uh, when, when i when i used to battle pseudoscience in the healthcare system uh, i never had any support from the general media the professional media and, and now i have so now all the major newspapers and tv stations in brazil they are coming to us for information they are coming to my institute they are, they are interviewing scientists and they are running the campaigns to uh, to stay at home to use masks and this is also uh, this is also a beautiful thing that we got the media involved in science this time they they are on our side <laughs> okay i think uh, we've got time for one final question um and it's another one that's been submitted anonymously and they ask how are you funding your legal efforts and is there any public participation Uh, so uh, we were lucky enough that there is a group of lawyers here in Brazil doing pro bono uh, legal stuff during the pandemic. And so this legal action that we filed in the Supreme Court, it was all uh, done in a pro uh, by a pro bono uh, law. Uh, sorry, office. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Ran out of words. It, it, it's difficult when you speak so, uh, for so much time, uh, and it's not your mother tongue. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but uh, so this law office uh, this, uh, decided to help us. They they thought that it was a, a good cause and they wanted to help. So they are doing it pro bono. And and this is uh, this is also a positive thing here in Brazil. So we we, we have help. Okay. okay. So I, I think part of uh, what that question was about was um, is is there a way that we as the skeptics community can help contribute towards towards any legal fees? Thank you so much. I'll call you if we need it. <laughs> But so far, we're good. I think well, we have lots of, of lawyers in Brazil who are helping us. So, so far we covered. But thank you so, so much for the offer. And I, I hope I won't need it. But it's good to know you're there. <laughs> okay. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you very much for, that, for, uh, for your talk. That was an incredibly eye-opening talk. Um, and thank you very much for uh, sticking with us and answering all of our questions. Um, my pleasure, really. Thank you for the opportunity.